The following sermon was delivered by guest preacher, Reverend Dr. Anna Pinckney Strait, in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to FAPC.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Pinckney Strait. Our scripture reading for today, our lectionary reading for today, comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, starting with the 25th verse. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What would our world look like if we were all as bold as the Samaritan of today's text? If we all took seriously Jesus' call and command to pay attention, pay attention and act in a way that values relationships, relationships above all else, what would it look like if we lived like that? Many, many years ago, decades in fact ago, I was a sophomore at Agnes Scott College, a small liberal arts college in Decatur, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, a Presbyterian college, women's college. And when I was a sophomore, I made the announcement that I felt called to become a minister. And people were, well, surprised. I didn't come from a family of ministers. And to tell you the truth, I hadn't attended church every Sunday in college. 
And I wasn't very good at articulating this call that I had felt from a much younger age. That call was so much bigger than words or bigger than any one moment as faith is. And so many of my family and many of my friends were surprised. But that surprise was nothing compared to the surprise they had two years later when I announced that I would be going to seminary in New York City. What? What was a southerner like me doing going to a school in New York City? As you already heard, wasn't I the sixth generation of my family to go to the same Presbyterian church in Charleston, South Carolina? Wasn't Columbia Theological Seminary just a few blocks away from where I'd gone to college? A fine institution. Even my home presbytery was shocked and not in favor of this New York City plan. In fact, they forbade me to go and told me that if I did, I would never be able to work in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, it will come as no surprise to anyone who is a parent or anyone who works with teenagers or young adults. But when they forbade me, it made me pack my bags even faster. When people express their surprise about this decision, I tried to communicate why this was the right decision, why I felt called. But I know I didn't do that very well. I was so young, and it was hard to put into words. I've had time to reflect on it since, and what I wish I had said was this. Why are you surprised? This isn't out of character. This is precisely in character for who God created me to be, who I am. I am the granddaughter of a New Yorker. My grandmother was born and raised in Syracuse, New York, and my mother might have grown up in Charleston, but she was born in Syracuse too. Not just that, my great aunt Jane moved from Charleston, South Carolina to New York City when she was just a teenager in the 1920s to dance in Florin Ziegfeld's Follies. It was only one of the great adventures of her life. And if you go back a couple of generations before that, there's her great aunt, the very first Sarah Allen, who moved to New York City from Charleston to attend the Women's Co Medical College at New York Infirmary. And after graduating from that institution, she became the very first female physician in the state of South Carolina. I'll confess now, I've left one member of my family out of this chronology, my uncle. My uncle also spent time in New York City in his professional equestrian career, but he had so much fun here, I can't tell any of those stories in church. <laughs> so when people were surprised that I wanted to come to New York City, that I felt called to come to New York City and attend Union Theological Seminary to train to become a minister, what I wish I'd been able to communicate to them was that I was not blazing a trail. I was traveling a well-traveled path. Why were people surprised? Well, it was because they made assumptions about me. They made assumptions, mistaken assumptions, but assumptions based on where I had been born and where I had grown up. Those kinds of assumptions, mistaken assumptions, are the backbone of today's text. They are assumptions that Jesus works to dismantle as he asks us to pay attention 
and then to act on what we see in a way that values and prioritizes relationships. It starts with a lawyer, a lawyer who's not being honest. His question is not a real question. He's trying to trap Jesus, a theological trap. Luke tells us he asks a question to test Jesus. And the language here for testing is akin to tempting. In fact, the language is connected to the same kind of testing and tempting that Satan did to Jesus when Jesus was in the wilderness. That's the equivalent for the lawyer here. I want to stop for a moment and say that I'm a fan of lawyers. Worshiping with us today is one of my favorite lawyers, Jim Copeland. He's a member of my session of the church that I serve in New Bern, North Carolina. But before he was on my session, he was a member of this session here at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Here where he spent formative years, here where he and Tahira were married and their son was baptized. Jim Copeland's legal mind is phenomenal, but his heart is even bigger. So I want to say, this is not all lawyers, but this lawyer is up to no good. And we know this because Luke tells us, but also because Jesus tells us. Lawyers in the time of Jesus were not secular students of civil code. They studied and were well-versed in Mosaic law. And the question he asks Jesus this day wouldn't have been covered on the first day of law school. It would have been considered a prerequisite. Everyone would have known the answer to this question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is not flustered. He says, well, what do you read? What do you already know? And the lawyer answers. And he says, you are right. When you say, love God, love your neighbor, that's the right answer. Now go and live it. The lawyer doesn't give up. Maybe he's embarrassed. Maybe he's embarrassed because Jesus has pointed out his false question. Or maybe he's just so fixated on his goal of debunking Jesus that he can't read the room. He asks a follow-up question, and that question leads to the parable. Parables which by their very nature are supposed to shake us up are supposed to rattle our minds and our hearts to get us to see the world in a new way, a more faithful way. Jesus, in this parable, steps off of the platform with the lawyer and walks into the field of faith. And he invites the lawyer and all of us to join him there. And he does that by telling a story that the people thought they knew. The script Jesus knows would have fallen a well-known model of story at the time. So people probably, as he started, thought, I don't need to listen too closely. I know how this turns out. It starts with the terrible. A man is attacked and robbed and left half dead. Yeah, yeah, they would have nodded. That happens when you travel. These things happen. The roads aren't safe. But, Jesus says, a priest is on his way. Oh, good, oh, good. They would have nodded. Yep, the priest is going to help. This is going to take care of this problem. Only the priest walks by on the other side. What? That doesn't make sense. What's going on here? Then Jesus says, oh, but a Levite is on his way, another temple leader. And the people would have relaxed a little. Oh, oh well, the Levite will take care of it. The priest didn't. The Levite's going to take care of it. But no, the Levite goes to the other side. What? The people must have murmured. Did he say what I thought he said? And then they would have leaned in a little bit to hear what was happening. 
when Jesus says, oh, and now a Samaritan is on his way. A Samaritan, the rumbling would have started. Wait, it's supposed to be an Israelite next. That's how these stories happen. There is a series of three, a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite. What's a Samaritan doing in the story? Uh Uh-oh, this man is probably done for. The Samaritan will probably finish him off and make sure that the robbers didn't miss any of his possessions. And then Jesus says, it is the Samaritan who has compassion, who tends to the man's wounds with his precious resources, gives up his own animal to carry the man, pays for the man's care. And this would have made no sense to the people who were hearing it. Not only would they not have believed that a Samaritan would do such a thing, many of them probably would have thought, well, I'd rather lay there and die than have a Samaritan help me. And that's Jesus' point entirely. That if we want to live in a different world, if we want to live in the kingdom world, we're not going to get there unless we see the world in a different way. The eternal life that the lawyer asks about, it's not some out there world. It's not some future reward. It's a kingdom that's being recognized in the here and now. The kingdom of peace and justice and love that is both on its way and not here yet. Eternal life, Jesus says, is the faithfully lived life. Do this and you will live, Jesus tells the lawyer. That's the eternal life. And to live in it, Jesus says, we have to start by valuing relationships, by paying attention, by seeing what's out there and attending to those needs, not worrying about some idealized future. We need to care in the here and the now. From Henry Nouwen's teachings, the rabbi asked his students, how can we determine the hour of dawn when night ends and the day begins? One of the rabbi's students suggested, when from a distance you can distinguish from a dog and a sheep. No, was the answer of the rabbi. Is it when you can distinguish between a fig tree and a grapevine, asked a second student. No, the rabbi said. Well, please tell us the answer then, said the students. It is when, said the wise teacher, when you look into the face of another human being and you have enough light to recognize that it is your sibling. Until then, night is still with us. If you want there to be day, if you want there to be the kingdom, the eternal life that we live right now, we have to start by seeing, paying attention, and knowing the sibling that is in our midst. What this Samaritan did was not out of character. It was precisely in character for who God created him to be. And the question isn't why a Samaritan helped this man. The question is, why are we surprised that a Samaritan would help this man? Why do we expect something different? Which leads to those natural next questions. Who do you think is least likely to stop and render aid to someone who is hurt? And who would you least like to stop and help you if you were hurt? That's exactly where God is calling us to look, to pay attention. Those are the relationships we're called to attend to. Because God, throughout the texts of the Bible, consistently uses the people we least expect, and to be honest, the people we would rather God not use, to show us what love 
is. What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it be like if in our world we were bold like the Samaritan, if we took seriously the call to pay attention, to listen, to hear, and then to act in a way that values relationships? Paying attention, which just might lead us to notice that the word good is nowhere in this text. Why do we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus doesn't describe him in that way. We do. Is it one way of saying that, well, among the Samaritans, even the Samaritans, there might be one that's good? Or are we trying to say, well, the Samaritan's the superior person in this entire text. He's better than everyone else. Now, it isn't that all of the characters are the same in this passage from Luke. God doesn't ask us to shed who we are in order to live in the kingdom of God. Our diversity, after all, is not a weakness. It is our superpower. The point isn't that we see everyone as the same. It's we see everyone as our neighbor, one not more worthy than another. And the Samaritan is not the only neighbor here, not the only one who is worthy of God's love and compassion. What does it mean to see the priest as our neighbor, the Levite as our neighbor, the lawyer as our neighbor? Because these are the man's neighbors too. And the kingdom of God isn't just for one of them, it's for all of them. It's for all of us together. And is there any greater world need right now than to know that we are loved, that we are worthy of neighborliness, and that we are capable of neighborliness? What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it be like in our world if we were bolder in our faith? If we took seriously this call to pay attention, to listen, to hear, and then when we see a need to act in a way that values relationships and to know that this also includes you. For sometimes we are the ones who are in the road, who are in need of aid. In this world where there is so much unrest, so much uncertainty, so much pain, so much exhaustion, today's words also remind us that when we are the ones who are in the middle of the road in need and feel defeated, we will have a neighbor. God will be there with us. God will be there to tend your wounds, to provide for your rest until you are well enough to pick up the ministry that has been given to you once again. We cannot be bold in our faith. We cannot pay attention or hear what God is saying if we don't also include ourselves in the ones that are worthy of neighborliness. Who is your neighbor? The only answer in the eyes of God is yes. Priest, Levite, Samaritan, disciple, friend, enemy, the one you see in the mirror, yes, that's the neighbor, worthy of love. Do this and you will live. Go and do likewise. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, as you leave this place, as you leave this time, know that wherever you go and whatever you do, you are God's beloved children. So speak the good news, deliberate the will of God, comfort the fearful, reach out to the lonely, be someone's neighbor, 
and let someone be a neighbor to you. Sing, hope, pray, and laugh. And may God create in us bountiful souls. May Jesus Christ walk beside us. And may the Holy Spirit add a dance to our steps. Alleluia. Amen. <laughs>